thank you. I'm going to start with a quotation from a pamphlet written by uh, Anthony Lord Leicester QC in 1994, uh, complaining about the price rises uh, in Hansard. I'll come back to that later, but uh, he said, the history of Hansard is strewn with the battles, great and small, of a parliament conscious of its rights, privileges and powers, and conscious of the image, both of itself and of its individual members. I'm going to try and uh, describe the impact of the internet on a key process within Parliament, the publication and distribution of Hansard, the official report of debates. I'm going to try and draw parallels with an earlier period in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, before the reporting of debates became institutionalised. And with the advent of the internet, there was a period of transition before the implications of this new set of technologies were fully understood and could be exploited. Actors outside Westminster led the way, taking the new online Hansard and repurposing it as a fully realised information resource. This was resisted by Parliament at first, but Parliament eventually began to adapt to the new landscape, as did the copyright framework for official material. Uh, I'm also going to take a brief detour to consider the period uh, in which the Lord Leicester pamphlet was written immediately before Hansard was published on the World Wide Web to illustrate the extent of the gulf between the pre- and post-internet eras. Parliament's reluctance to allow reporting of its debates until the late 18th century using the protection of parliamentary privilege has been examined by Jason Pesey and others. Reasons advanced for secrecy included the undesirability of the monarch finding out what was going on uh, and the fear that men could not give their opinions freely in the public gaze. Although, uh, Jason Pesey suggests that as the 18th, 17th century progressed, as we've heard, the reaction of the commons to periodic attempts to print reports and debates indicates that this had morphed from principle to policy. Uh, a desire to control what was printed rather than a principled opposition to pr uh, any parliamentary reporting whatsoever. Nevertheless, following the arrival of newspapers, there continued, as Lord Leicester put it, a series of ill-tempered feuds between publishers and the House of Commons, leading to groveling appearances by would-be reporters at the bar of the House, and even in 1771, as part of John Wilkes' campaign, to dispatch to the Tower of London of a Lord Mayor um, following a standoff between the House and the press. Over the years, there had been several creative attempts to get round the ban by printing reports during the parliamentary recess or by thinly disguising them as debates of fictitious societies, such as the proceedings of the lower room of the Robin Hood Society. After the concerted campaign of 1771, reporters was tolerated, and in 1803 started an unbroken run of parliamentary reports, starting with Cobbett's parliamentary debates, which were later taken over by Thomas Curzon Hansard, from whom the reports quickly took their name. What began as an often struggling commercial enterprise was increasingly supported by and eventually adopted by the public sector, as the House of Commons assumed responsibility for the official report in 1909. Lorraine Sutherland, a uh, former editor of Hansard, observed that the events of 1771 did not mean that Parliament had given up its zealously guarded right to keep its proceedings secret. But it did mean that Parliament recognised the futility of trying to restrict the publication of its debates when there was so much public interest in them. 
Lester and colleagues pick up the story of Hansard again in 1980, when Hansard's publisher, HMSO, Her Majesty's Stationery Office, became a trading fund, a public sector body authorised and indeed required to trade at a profit. Over the course of the 1980s, the subsidy provided by HM Treasury was gradually reduced, leading to steep price rises and, in turn, a marked decline in sales and library subscriptions. Lester argues that this amounted to a parliamentary dereliction of duty because it resulted in a decrease in the availability of factual and objective information about the legislative process at a time when the people had never been so extensively governed. This time, the threat to parliamentary reporting seemed to have come from the bean counters rather than the censors. Lester's pamphlet in 1994 is a revealing snapshot of a brief period after the invention of the World Wide Web in 1989, but before its adoption mushroomed in the mid-1990s. There's an acknowledgement of the ever-increasing opportunities offered by computer access and other technological advances in the delivery and exchange of information but no hint of the speed and scale with which these would develop and how ubiquitous free access to official documents on the web would become within a very short period. In the same year as Leicester's pamphlet was published, websites were created by Birmingham City Council, The Economist, Amnesty International, and tellingly, Bianca's Smut Shack. <laughs> in 1996, Parliament had got in on the act, and here you see our first website, publishing through the recently privatised HMSO, an ever-expanding collection of parliamentary papers, including Hansard. For those who had access to the internet, the problem of the rising cost of reading Hansard had been removed at a stroke. For HMSO, which was privatised in 1996, a new business model was clearly required, as the marginal cost of distribution plummeted to near zero. And here you see uh, Hansard as it appeared on the World Wide Web uh, in uh, around 1996. As you see, and I'll return to this, it looks as near as damn it uh, like the printed Hansard. It's in a single, um, uh, it, it, it's not in columns, um, but that's the only concession really. Lester and colleagues insist that they do not subscribe to the romantic idea of the Gladstonian citizen following every debate, noble brow furrowed, civic duty to the fore. Nevertheless, looking back from the 21st century, it's hard to avoid the vision of Hansard arriving, keenly anticipated, on the doormat every morning along with the Times. The printed Hansard remains an excellent resource, but frankly, few would read it from cover to cover, and the online version quickly began to demonstrate its advantages as an information resource, particularly after the arrival of Google at the turn of the century increased the utility of search engines exponentially. Hansard contains a great deal of information vital to the scrutiny, but also to a lesser extent the operation of government, including all questions to ministers, ministerial statements, reports of plenary debates, and until recently, written answers to questions previously put by MPs and peers. These provide the latest iteration of government policy or a bellwether of opposition dissent. Debates include proposals for legislation by backbench MPs, debates on government bills, big set-piece debates commissioned by the government or opposition parties, and short debates led by backbench MPs to raise hobby horses or local issues. If legislation is poorly drafted, ministerial speeches during the passage of a bill provide in limited circumstances a guide to interpretation for the courts. 
The advantages of accessing Handside via its early online versions seem rather mundane in 2016, but in this context, it's worth noting some of them. Research was freed from the confines of major libraries. As noted already, the number of library subscriptions, even before it was available online, were reducing dramatically. It was easy to navigate to a given date. Search engines could quickly locate contributions by individual MPs and peers, and search engines quickly located discussion of bills or topics. The early web version of Hansard did not come close to realizing the full benefits of online publishing, however. To employ a useful IT cliche, it was clunky. Navigating from speech to speech was frustratingly slow as debates were carved up into chunks of fixed length. The search function on the Parliament site was poor. Metadata to enable more accurate searching was poor or non-existent. In comparison with the indexing carried out by the staff of the Commons Library for the bound volumes or for Parliament's internal database policy. Others saw the potential of the internet for using official publications in new ways, even if Parliament was slow to exploit it. The Cabinet Office commissioned two experts, Ed Mayo and Tom Steinberg, to explore new developments in the use and communication of citizen and state-generated public information in the UK. The report by Mayo and Steinberg put it thus, public sector information underpins a growing part of the economy and the amount is increasing at a dramatic rate. The driver is the emergence of online tools that allow people to use, reuse, and create information in new ways. When enough people can collect, reuse, and distribute public sector information, people organize it around it in new ways, creating new enterprises and new communities. In each case, these are designed to offer new ways of solving old problems. In the past, only large companies, government, or universities were able to reuse and recombine information. Now, the ability to mix and mash data is far more widely available. Uh, two early examples of this approach with particular relevance to Parliament were the public WIP, which you can see here, and they work for you. The Public Whip is a website that used software to harvest, analyse and publish the voting history of MPs and peers. It was developed following the vote by the House of Commons on 18th of March 2003 to approve the invasion of Iraq. Francis Irving, one of the developers, said he regarded it as a tool to record which MPs had defied their party's whip long after the information had become effectively inaccessible for reference. As a tool for researching votes in, the both, in both Houses of Parliament, it was vastly superior to the straightforward division lists in the online Hansard. Uh, it explained the context of the vote. It enabled users to ex examine the voting record of an individual MP or peer over time or on a particular issue. It gave aggregate voting figures by party together with turnout. It also used software to make inferences about whether an MP or peer's vote was contrary to the instruction or whip given by their party. In 2004, a group of volunteers used some of the software developed for Public Whip and built a new site, theyworkforyou.com. Here you can see its first incarnation, I think from 2004. Additional features were added, including parliamentary debates presented in a more user-friendly manner than the official version. Two years later, uh, They Work For You was adopted by My Society, a not-for-profit social enterprise founded by Tom Steinberg. And this is a later design uh, where they, they really, I think, got the layout and the, uh, the functionality really, really good. The official online version followed as far as possible the tradition, traditional pre presentation of Hansard, which we might term Hansard as book. 
The genius of their work for you was the full realisation of the idea of Hansard as data, which could be repurposed as web content. As well as information on, dis on divisions, debates were broken down into individual speeches, along with a picture of the MP, as well as their party position, and a permalink so it could be shared easily. Speeches could be viewed sequentially or part of a collection of an MP's contributions. Readers could annotate speeches with their own comments. Actually, looking for examples of that, it's very rarely used, um, and quite often uh, more in the context of internal debates about uh, the site and, and, uh, and the internet. The data was also used to compile an esoteric collection of statistics on MPs. In the current version, we learn how many times each MP has spoken in debates in the last year, how this compares to the average, how many written questions they've asked, how often they've taken part in divisions, what expenses they've claimed, but also how their speeches fare on the flesh Kincaid grade level readability index, and even how many three-word alliterative phrases they've used, such as she sells seashells. And as if that wasn't enough, the site was much easier to navigate and read online, and generally looked better than the official on-site version. Of course, not all data is helpful data. The website admits that the, it added the silly statistic about alliteration to catch the reader's attention. But of great importance, Peter Luff MP raised concerns that the unnecessarily large of written parliamentary questions being tabled by MPs was driven in part by a desire to improve their performance data. He said in an adjournment debate, chief among the villains is a well-meaning website, theyworkforyou.com, which provides numerical ranking of MPs' parliamentary activity. When it comes to scrutiny of the executive, Luff observed, numbers are a very crude indicator of effectiveness. One good question is better than a hundred bad ones. In response, they worked for you, removed absolute rankings, and added some explanatory text, suggesting that the statistics were best used as a starting point for evaluating MPs' performance, rather than an absolute measure. As they worked for you became a well-established part of parliamentary life, it seemed that the internet might have provided a new answer to the old question of who guards the guardians. The activities of my society and other activist groups around the world have given rise to new forms of civil society organisations, known as parliamentary monitoring organisations, and also new forms of citizen engagement. They work for you's parent organisation, My Society, now has an international reach, providing advice and free software to not-for-profit organisations, and was even commissioned to conduct a review of Parliament's digital services. When they worked for you was launched, however, many officials and members of Parliament did not welcome the attention, and the parliamentary authorities were reluctant to license the use of data from Hansard under parliamentary copyright. Uh, Francis Irving said in an interview with uh, Heather Booth, uh, we had to take the risk of publishing without a license because we believe everyone has a right to reproduce what their MP has been saying in Parliament. Parliament did eventually give us a license, but one shouldn't have to rely on their kindness. It should be every citizen's right to reproduce that information without having to ask permission. At that time, in order to reproduce material from Hansard, it was necessary to obtain a license from the Office of Public Sector Information, the part of HMSO retained by the state when the publishing operation was privatised a decade earlier. Parliament's approach to copyright was intended to preserve the right to charge uh, to reproduce its publications, and perhaps more important, to preserve its dignity by keeping a close eye on who was using its material. A license to reuse, parliament, uh, to reuse material subject to parliamentary copyright contained a requirement to refrain from damaging Parliament's reputation. <laughs> 
Leicester's observation a decade earlier about how Parliament managed the reporting of its activities held true. It was still very conscious of its rights, privileges and powers, and of its image and that of its individual members. In Jason Pearcey's words, there was still a desire to control what was printed and published. Nevertheless, there, was a, there were countervailing pressures. The House of Commons Commission's strategic plan included the objective of improving public understanding and knowledge of the work of the House. And the Modernisation Committee, created by the Blair government to modernise the House of Commons, called upon the House to do more to make it easier for people to understand the work of Parliament and communicate its activities to the world outside. The tensions between, on the one hand, the desire to assert copyright over official publications, and on the other, uh, the ease with which online content could be captured and reused, have been explored a few years later in a white paper, Crown Copyright in the Internet Age. Um, it's very touching throughout. Uh, Internet age and information age are, are given capital I and A. Uh, reasons for continuing to license official publications included the preservation of the status and authority of official versions of the work and maintaining an income stream from paid-for services or from third parties who wish to use or resell value-added content. Amongst the reasons suggested in the white paper for removing all restrictions on Crown copyright were the hope that this would lead to the growth of the market in information and assist the government's aims for the UK to be a leader in the information age, plus the recognition that policing and enforcing copyright in online official publications was impractical. I think that was the clincher, really. There was little doubt that Parliament could have done more to, uh, would have done more to damage its reputation by attempting to enforce copyright against a work for you than by sanctioning or ignoring it. Following a consultation, the government settled on a policy of improved and streamlined access and increasing the use of copyright waiver, applying the lightest of management touches to broad categories of government information. This led to the introduction in 2001 of an online Crown copyright licence known as Click Use. The Click Use licence was introduced in Parliament in 2005, and my society obtained a licence to reuse material from Hansard on its site. Within three years, the number of new licences taken out each month had more than doubled. Parliament's new licensing conditions dropped the requirement to preserve the dignity of the House, although video recordings of Parliament were not covered by Click Use. When a new vastly improved system for watching and sharing audiovisual content online was introduced by Parliament in 2015, video was still treated differently, in part because it was perceived to present a greater risk of misuse than text. Uh, the terms for using official footage in not-for-profit websites exclude certain categories of website, including those that lower the dignity of either house and of individual members, uh, satirical websites, basically and stipulate that clips should not be used in any way that could bring the UK Parliament or any individual member into disrepute. Within six years of the introduction of click use in Parliament, the system was looking past its sell-by date, amid reports that users of public sector information found the Crown copyright system confusing and off-putting. Consequently, a new Open Government Licence was introduced in 2010. You can see uh, a little bit of it here. This is the parliamentary version. And it's uh, full of symbols. It's, it's meant to be a li little bit like the Creative Commons system. Um, so it removed the need to register for a licence altogether and provided a single set of terms and conditions for anyone wishing to use or licence government information. Parliament followed suit with an open Parliament licence the following year, and its terms were identical to the government's version. 
The new license gave permission to copy, publish, distribute, and transmit public sector information. Uh, and it also gave explicit permission to adapt the information and to exploit it commercially and non-commercially by combining it with other information or by including it in the third party's own product or application. Exactly what They Work For You had been doing uh, nearly a decade earlier. It, this was also compatible with the government's new open data policy of making large volumes of public sector data sets available uh, via its online repository, which was launched in January 2010. Parliament's own open data website was launched four years later. Meanwhile, Parliament's systems for managing and publishing procedural information are beginning to catch up with the approach of third parties like they work for you. Uh, here we see uh, a calendar from the new system for viewing online video coverage of Parliament. Uh, so the uh, new system enables MPs or campaigners to embed video clips on their own websites. It's easy to navigate through the calendar and it uses images to good effect. In the spring of 2016, Hansard launched their new site. It too looks bright and modern. It too is easy to navigate and can be read without difficulty on a phone or tablet. These new features have combined with active promotion of debates and committee hearings by the Petitions Committee to increase page views on the site almost fivefold in comparison with the old one, bringing reporting of parliamentary debates to an audience which could not have, which could not have been dreamed of when Leicester bemoaned the rapidly increasing cover price and decreasing number of subscriptions in 1994. Here we see as an example, uh, this is... Um, online readers of a debate on uh, state pension age uh, in uh, December 2015 on the old website and uh, so the, the biggest concentration of readers of course in the UK and that's around the 5,000 mark and then here we see uh, using the new site how uh, much further uh, The, the in, in readership has spread. So it's an almost identical debate. Actually, it was Mahalia Black, who's probably more of an attraction as well, uh, but um, much more widely read. So 40,000 plus in the UK and just about every corner of the world uh, getting to read that debate. So in conclusion, uh, Jason Pearcey suggested that the skirmishes over the predecessors of Hansard were motivated by a desire by Parliament to control what was printed about its proceedings. The publication of Hansard on the World Wide Web and the rapid development of web-based technologies, which could be used by anyone with the right amount of technical knowledge, opened the door to a, a alternative, unofficial versions of Hansard, which included novel features such as league tables of MPs and the annotation of debates by readers. This was a considerable challenge to the parliamentary authorities, and it isn't surprising, perhaps, that there, were, there was an initial reluctance to sanction the reuse of parliamentary publications in this manner. Nevertheless, a number of factors combined quickly to overcome this position. These included the pace and scale of the change in expectations introduced by the internet, the determination at the same time by Parliament to improve its communications with the public, and the sheer impracticality of controlling unauthorised use of text-based copyright material. Parliament is now benefiting from the technologies which not long ago seemed to pose a threat.